Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Walter P. Ruther Library. This is Dan Galadner coming to you straight from the Ruther Library in the Cass Corridor of Detroit, Michigan, on Wayne State University's campus. How you doing, Troy? I'm fantastic. How are you? I'm I'm okay, getting ready for the holiday spirit. So you have more shopping to do? Um, yes, but Dan, please remember that this is airing on January 3rd. I thought it was airing next week. No. What's airing next week? Nothing. Then what are we talking about? I don't know. <laughs> uh, this week we are talking to Lewis Jones, Dr. Lewis Jones. He is our field archivist here at the Ruther Library. Um, it's a position that basically what it sounds like. He goes into the field and gets collections for the Ruther Library. Like a grassy field? No, more like a haystack field. <laughs> Soybeans. Oh, okay. Um, we decided to talk to him because he brings in some really unique, interesting collections and has great stories about them. Uh, of course, my favorite is the collection of Utah Phillips, the organizer, the folk singer, the poet, the golden voice of the great Southwest. Um, and he has a great quote that I've always loved when I first got into archives and labor archives was, the long memory is the most radical idea in America. And we have to keep reminding ourselves of our memory. Um, also, he talks about how we bring in, uh, brought in uh, part two, part three, a bunch of uh, continuing uh, donations from the NAACP of Detroit, and what the field is now calling community archives or community collecting or archival activism, and that is the collection of LGBT. Detroit, which is bringing more collections on LGBTQ a community of the Detroit area. So this is Dr. Jones. He is a staff person here at the Ruther Library. And enjoy. Dr. Jones, how you doing? Welcome um, to our podcast. Uh, thank you. G great to be here. It's excellent to finally have you here. Now, how did you get involved with archives? Oh, boy. Um, I guess one way to, to share is, is that when I was at Morehouse College, that's where I went to undergraduate school, the dean of the chapel, a guy by the name of Lawrence Carter, uh, says to the entire class, we had these things called freshman orientation, which people usually hated, myself included. <laughs> and... Uh, he said, don't call home too much. You know, we're freshmen, right? Uh, write letters. Write a letter every day and keep a copy of every letter that you write. And uh, that idea resonated with me. Uh, going to Morehouse was an exciting experience for me. It was in Atlanta. I'm from New York, so that was exciting by itself. The going away to college, you know, was a very, very exciting thing. And I wanted to, something in, in me wanted to document this experience that I was undertaking. And so... I would write these letters. I wouldn't write them every day, but I wrote a lot of letters over the course of uh, my four years in college. And I wrote them subsequently as well, because he kind of got me started on this trajectory. But at the time, if you were to ask me what an archivist was, I would look at you with the same blank face that people look at me when I tell them what I do for a living. <laughs> and so uh, about 10 years later, a friend of mine and colleague, a um, guy by the name of James Spady, very much into history, and uh, he, he shared with me this book called The Historian as Detective. And somewhere in that book, I read the book, and somewhere in that book, there's a reference to, to um, archivists. And, and subsequently, the same guy told me about this program at the University of Delaware. 
um, that train people to become archivists. You can go through a master's program in history and take a concentration in archival administration. And uh, I was in a dead-end kind of profession. I was a paralegal working for law firms and legal departments of corporations. And it was kind of a dead-end kind of job. I didn't really know what to do with my life. And so when um, this colleague and friend of mine suggested that I look into becoming an archivist and training at the University of Delaware, I, I jumped at it, you know. And so I got through the program. I um, uh, stayed out of school for a year looking for a job. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I graduated, in, I think, June 1st, 1992, and, I, and that's what the, uh, June 1st, 1993 is when I walked in the door here. <laughs> oh. Yeah, and so, so the, these letters that I wrote then and wrote, wrote continue to write, they're, they're part of the Lewis Jones collection. They're, they're in a file cabinet in my basement. I'm you sure know? your wife loves those. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so they, they may never wind up in a repository. Who, who knows? But, but they're, they're letters that I, I keep. And so I, I look back at that moment when I was a freshman in college as like when I started getting interested in archives, even though I didn't know what an archivist right, was. Right, you didn't know what it was before the Right, That's yeah. cool. It's kind of like how we all stumbled across this profession. Yeah, we, we kind of stumbled across it. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. excellent. Yeah, so no, now you, you you started out here as the SEIU archivist, and right. now you are a field archivist. Right. So why don't you right. tell the folks at home exactly what a field archivist <laughs> does? A field archivist, in some places, refer to an acquisition archivist. We go out and we collect papers on behalf of the repository where we work. And so at Wayne State, we collect in three major areas. We collect the records of, and we're the official repository for Wayne State University. Um, but we also collect records, and the thing that we're that's known for is collecting the records of organized labor. So we're the official repository for the the historical records of a number of large international labor unions, the UAW being the largest one, but the American Federation of Teachers, the Airline Pilots Association, the United Farm Workers, the Industrial Workers of, of the World, uh, the Service Employees International, International Union, which is the union I started off as, as the archivist for that, that collection. And then we also collect the records of people and organizations connected with the historical development of metropolitan Detroit. So the Southeastern Michigan Council of Governments, uh, New Detroit, uh, Focus Hope, uh, the Detroit branch of NAACP, a number of prominent activists associated with the city, uh, Ken and Sheila Cockrell, uh, Damon Keith, Grace Lee Boggs, George Crockett, uh, Ed Littlejohn has a wonderful collection here. And, and many, many others whose names I can't remember all. At, no, at, at we, we got right. we got tons. We got right. miles of paper on that stuff. So how do you get around to getting collections in? Do you make that cold phone call? Do you go out to community events? It, it's a range of different ways that, that uh, um, uh, you get collections. Uh, uh, some archivists in my position wake up every morning and read the obituaries. I know it's a fairly morbid thing to do. I do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and in fact, I remember there's a collection I got that way, you know, um, uh, and, and it's, it's a fairly, uh, it would be a fairly creepy thing for me to call someone up and make a phone, a cold phone call to, in this case, the, the daughter of a woman who had recently died. But um, in, in my business, uh, we know people or know people that know people and who can like pave the way for us. And I, in this particular instance, I had a friend and colleague um, who happened to live in the in the same building as the woman who, who passed. And, and she knew the daughter reached out to her in a very gentle kind of way, in a way that I couldn't in, in a phone, cold phone call. 
And I, and I try not to make cold phone calls because it kind of throws people off a little bit. You know, I try to work through um, people that might know the people or organizations or someone a representative with the organization. Um, and we have a collection policy that outlines those uh, three major areas and, and subcategories within those areas. And in the last couple of years, we, we created a, um, a, a smaller list of um, collections or people that we want to go after in the more immediate kind of future. Cool. So you're our community relations person in a way. Yeah, yeah. I, I interact with a lot of people in the community. And, you know, the job is to nurture those relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, I spend a lot of time trying to explain to people uh, what it is that I'm looking for, the kind of material that we, I'm looking for, why it is I think that they are important or the organization that they represent is important. And I, I make a, a big effort to do it in, in, a, in a way that's not condescending. Um, but also in a way that's um, accessible, that, that they can get a sense where they say, oh, I understand now. And, and I get a lot of that. People say that I, I, I understand what you're looking for now. Um, and these are often people that may have originally thought that they didn't have anything all that important. But as we have a conversation, the, a light bulb goes off with them. Let's get into some of the collections you got. Mm. Um, all right. I was always curious. We one of my favorite collections here is the Utah Phillips, okay. Labor Troubadour, right, uh, right. wonderful hobo as he likes right, to call yeah. himself, riding the rails. <laughs> um, how did we come across that collection? And can you tell us a little bit about the collection itself? But first, do you know who Utah Phillips was? I did not know who Utah Phillips <laughs> was. Uh, his widow uh, contacted me in about 2013 or so. She emailed me. Um, and asked if I might be interested, or we might be interested in collecting his his papers. As I mentioned, I did not know who he was. So I immediately um, got on YouTube, and I, I found out a little bit about him. And I said, yeah, I think we probably want this person's <laughs> re- records. I spoke to some colleagues. At the, in particular, I know I spoke to um, Beth Myers, who is our former uh, director here, and not only talked to her about whether or not we want the papers, but I had to make an argument for why we should pay for the shipment of his papers from California. In the course of uh, talking to his widow, uh, Joanna Robinson, I learned that uh, Joanna Robinson and Utah Phillips, obviously when Utah Phillips was alive, had been in contact with a university in um, California about um, donating the papers there. And when I learned of this, I, I was a little anxious because I didn't want to do something that was unethical. Yeah, you don't want to step on anybody's toes or Ex- exactly. do as I call raiding someone else's collection. Right, way. yeah, yeah. So I, I'm, I'm very conscious of that. Um, there's a committee within SAA called the, the Committee on Ethics and Professional Conduct. And so uh, I forgot the individual who's the chair of that committee, but I reached out to him and just made sure that, hey, am I doing something unethical by having this conversation with this donor and encouraging her to donate papers to us? And he assured me that I was not. He said uh, the fact that I didn't reach out to her, she reached out uh, to me. They had made no formal um, arrangements with this other institution, this other university. So I was on, on solid ground there. So... Um, from there, we we moved forward. We, we you, know, you know made arrangements for the material to be um, uh, shipped here, which cost a, 
I forgot how much, uh, several hundred dollars to ship, ship the uh, 30 or 40 uh, large odd-shaped boxes that showed up in the archives in 2013. And when were in those uh, odd-shaped boxes? Um, yeah, there was all kind of material with those. There was um, some actual music, CDs. He, he, he collected, um, well, I should first mention that Utah Phillips, at one point in his life, he was an archivist. <laughs> so he, he had a sense of what to keep. So all kinds of correspondences. He had um, drafts of uh, stories and songs and, and poetry and just, you know, a random kind of notes that he took about life and you know, all these kind of things that he was involved in. One of the things that when I made the argument to Beth Myers, the director of the archives, about taking his collection, because it's not one of our typical kind of uh, labor collections, is that Utah Phillips himself was a huge proponent of the IWW, and we have, we, we are the official repository for the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World, and people that are doing research on the IWW, um, per- particularly within the last 50 years, may also be interested in looking at some of his material because he talks about the IWW and his stories, his, his poems, and, and his songs. And he was a member of the IWW. There, there are contracts uh, with places that contracted him to, to sing or, or, or tell stories. Um, and these are IWW contracts because he was a, a member of, of the IWW. So um, th- that became one of the reasons why we were really interested in, in his collection. And also, you know, he was the voice of labor for a while. Oh, right. Yeah. He, he was a voice of the working man. Yeah. I think he might refer to himself as an anarchist, but at the same time, he supported organized labor. And you see it throughout his poems, his, his short stories and, and his songs. Now, yeah. another collection, uh, a little different of how it comes in here is the Detroit chapter of the NAACP. Sure. Now, right. we've had this collection before you even started. That's correct. That's so correct. as a field archivist, what do you do and how do you bring in new collections that are already here? Let's say like a part two, a part three, and types like that. Right. What is the relationship yeah. there and how does Great that develop? Question. Yeah. So um, I received a phone call from the NAACP about a um, former headquarters that they had and still had at that moment um, located on West Grand Boulevard in Detroit. And they had left that facility a few years or some years before, but they still owned it. And there were file cabinets filled with um, records in that old and fairly abandoned building that they, they still had. But they were in the process of trying to get it ready to be sold. And so I get this phone call we got these records in this facility. Um, would you be interested in coming over and taking a look at them with the, with the view of bringing them over to the archives? And so um, so that's what I did. I went over there. Um, I remember it was cold. <laughs> it was, I don't know if it was winter, but it was, it, was, it was not warm and there was no heat. I went over there on two or three different occasions and had to call uh, my, my contact at the NAACP on a, a couple of those occasions so that they could have one of the workers come over and open up the door for me, you know. Right. And I'd stay there for, you know, a couple hours at a time, you know, looking through material and, and boxing it up and bring it back back to the archives. So they had the wherewithal to call you, to call the Ruther. They did. They did, Rather yeah. than toss it. Yeah, and I think that's how it worked because occasionally they would call – 
and ask for material from their collection. And I'd be their go-to person because I was the person that they knew. Uh, and I remember, uh, oh boy, this is going back about 15 years ago before I was even a field archivist. I had given um, their executive director at the time, Hester Wheeler, and, and actually the person that became his, one of his successors, uh, I had given them a tour of the Ruther. And um, uh, with some of our major donors or some of our not so major donors, you, you start to nurture these relationships uh, so that they know to give you that phone call. All right. Now this is more what in the field what people are talking about is contemporary collecting. Why don't you give us a little background of how we brought in the LGBTQ collection? Okay, yeah, sure. So about four years ago, we had a student worker here who is um, very much involved in the LGBTQ community here in Metropolitan Detroit. Her name is Nina Perez. Hi, Nina. <laughs> and so she put us in contact with a number of people in the LGBT uh, community, uh, William Colburn and Tim Retzloff, who, who, who wrote a dissertation, in fact, on the, the, the development of the LGBT, LGBT community in metropolitan Detroit. And we had a meeting um, with a, a number of folks within the community who, who gave us their support on this effort to collect the records of the LGBT community in Detroit. And um, they, they also became um, and continue to be contacts for us into the community. And um, Nina Perez uh, knew Curtis Lipscomb, who is the director or executive director of LGBT Detroit, which is an organization of, um, representing uh, the black LGBT community. And so, yeah, she put me in contact with him. And uh, Curtis Lipscomb came by the archives. I gave him a tour. I introduced him to members of the staff. Uh, I let him see our, our, our stack area. Um, I gave him a sense of what was involved in donating the material to us, uh, what would be done once the material got here. He, he was sold. He, right, was clear, right, right. he was very clearly uh, sold on this idea of having his, uh, the records of LGBT Detroit uh, be a part of the holdings at uh, Wayne State. The fact that it was a Detroit institution, even though we're, we're a state institution, but located in, in metropolitan Detroit, easily accessible to him if he wanted to come by and see the records, and uh, easily accessible to other people that lived in Detroit. The, the nurturing didn't end with him signing the agreement or me coming by and picking up the records. We have had uh, tables, we, vendor tables, at an event that he's had for a number of years called Hot, Hotter Than July. It's a picnic, and people come and talk on this stage and sing, and it's a festival. I think it's a probably decent way to, to uh, describe it. It's, it's focused on the African-American LGBT community in, in Detroit. And so we have had a table there and, and um, passing out literature about the Ruther and trying to interest other folks in and, and donating their, their records. And, and there are other people that, that once they, they know that we have the records of LGBTQ Detroit, they say, oh, okay, I feel very that much more comfortable with donating my papers to the Ruther Library. And that, that has happened. So collections build upon one another. They, they, once one person realizes that you have the collections of, of whoever, then um, it becomes easier to collect other papers. From, from right, it builds kind of on one person does it. It builds from there. Someone already trusts you enough. Right, they right, trust yeah. that person. They say, well, if he trusts 
the Ruther Library, then, of course, we'll put our papers in there. That, that's exactly how it works. And I should also mention, in one of my pitches to people, if I could say it that way, is that once we collect in a different under a different subject or theme, and we have uh, papers or records connected to that subject or theme, then we become a go-to place for researchers. Yeah. So they don't just research in the collection of the person whose records I'm trying to collect at any given period, but they're going to co- collect, they're going to research with a range of collections at this one facility. And that, that's something that I think interests is, is, is part of the selling point no, it is. Um, that I share with, with, with our prospective donors. All right. So those are the three different ways of collecting. Where do you see field archivists, acquisition archivists, archivists, collecting in the future? Is it going to be pulling things off the internet, dumping into servers? Uh, right now, it seems like you're just pulling in paper and talking to people. Are there going to be different right. ways of doing things soon? Oh, yeah. I think that the, the things have already changed in a major kind of way. Uh, I mean, we live in, um, in, in a world where videos that are of, of demonstrations and events in real time are, are taking place. And so the, increasingly, we're going to be going after records that are born digital, videos of demonstrations, or, or photographs that um, are born digital. And so we have to think differently about collecting that kind of material because unlike days of old, <laughs> I mean, this still takes place where, where an organization that's been around for many, many years, uh, you give them a call and, or they give you a call and they, there's all this material that they have and you go down to their office and, and you bring it back or to a person's home, the same kind of scenario. These events happen so quickly and, you know, by the time they're over, that material is gone unless archivists uh, actively pursue it as these events are, are taking place. And so um, we're beginning to uh, think more about how to go about doing that. Our, there are archivists that have, have been thinking about this and that more than thinking about this have been doing it in a very strategic and systematic way. Um, and we're beginning to get on board with that process as well because that's, that's the world we live in. And if we want to get material that's going to be meaningful to people 10, 25, 50 years from now, um, that's, that's the way that uh, we have to do it. Um, one of the worst inventions um, for, in, the, for the, in the archival field was the telephone because after the telephone, people start, stopped writing letters. But once the Internet came along then um, people were writing even fewer letters. <laughs> and so a lot of things are on email in, in other ways that people interact with one another by Facebook and Twitter and, and Snapchat and, and all the other kind of ways that are out there. So we have to uh, get on board with making sure we collect th- that kind of material. Right. Right. No, it's true. Yeah. It's, we have to find other ways of how humans are communicating and exactly. preserve that. Exactly. I think yeah. the, the worst event was the fax machine. Oh, yeah. It because that yeah. paper does not last. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Dr. Jones, thank you for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, it was a pleasure uh, um, having this discussion. Thanks a lot. All right, you're welcome. Well, that was Dr. Jones, our very own field archivist who hangs out in the soybean fields collecting archival material. <laughs> uh, what we mean by field is you go out into the community and get things. Troy's trying to give me a hard time about that. <laughs> But also, as Dr. Jones is our field archivist, he's always looking for new collections to bring in here to document Detroit, unions, uh, Wayne State University, and various aspects. So uh, why don't you drop him a line at lewis, 
L-O-U-I-S dot Jones, just how I say it. Jones, nothing different there, at wayne.edu. That's lewis.jones at wayne.edu. Or you can visit our website, www.ruther.wayne.edu. Smart listeners know to thumb up, send an email, give five stars to their favorite podcast. So I'm asking you all, if we're doing a good job and you like what we're doing, why don't you let us know? Because we have no idea. We're just kind of like talking and saying stuff that we find is funny and interesting and interesting people. So wouldn't that be nice, Troy, if people let us know what's going on? You should let us know mm-hmm. if you appreciate our show. She's a poet, and she doesn't know it. Say goodbye, Troy. Goodbye, Troy. Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers of Tales from the Ruther Library are Dan Glagner and Troy Eller-English. Special assistants from the Ruther Podcast Collective, including Bart Bilmer, Elizabeth Clemens, Megan Courtney, and Paul Neerink. Of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. To learn more about the Ruther Library, or if you have any questions, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. What grassy field? Soybeans. Soybean field? (laughs) That's what everybody's growing nowadays. Corn. Can't say corn in Michigan. Mm. What do we have here in Michigan? Soybeans? Cherries. Cherries. Apples. <gasps> Apples. He's. That's, that's not, an orchard. Not a field. Same thing with cherries, Dan. <laughs> Is that in that? Oh, okay. That's an orchard. <laughs> Soybeans, then. Soybean field.